From the mountains to the coast, create memories, meet new people, and find your favorite wine, mead, or cider in NC. Download the NC Wine app or visit ncwine.org to plan your trip to North Carolina wine country today. I'm Matt. And I'm Joe. We're the NC Wine Guy. Welcome to Cork. In this episode, we sit down with Katie and Dan from Barn Door Cider Works in Fairview, North Carolina. Katie and Dan are enjoying the rustic simplicity that cider brings. The ciders that they make at Barn Door Cider Works reflect that approach, which allows them to embrace the natural flavors and complexity of the apples. Wine Class with the Wine Mouths is back. Join us as they take us through the next chapter in the history of wine. This episode is made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council. You can learn more about the council by going to their website, ncwine.org. Sit back, pour a glass, and listen. So today we're not talking wine exactly, we're talking cider. And we want to welcome Katie Moore and Dan Fowler of Barn Door Cider Works to the show Hey, Dan, welcome to Cork Talk. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. So introduce yourselves to our listeners and tell us uh, all about Barn Door Cider Works and how you got started and, and what how, what you love about cider. Wow. Okay. <laughs> That's <laughs> a lot. That is a lot. <laughs> uh, I'm Katie Moore, and uh, I've been drinking cider for a very long time. When I traveled in Europe as a young person, newly out of university. I was not a beer drinker and certainly did not have a developed palate to be drinking wine or the budget. So uh, I started drinking cider then and have continued to do so and have watched an interest as the cider industry has changed dramatically over the past, uh, without dating myself too much, you know, 40 years. Um, (laughs) But yeah, so so that's kind of my background with cider. I'm also, um, I manage a small creamery and uh, I'm a cheesemaker. And then I also do some other work uh, like most people here in our area, our neck of the woods. We have multiple jobs and many hats to pay the bills and keep ourselves uh, interested in life. So um, yeah, I do lots of different things, but mainly the, the cider and the cheese. Excellent. Yeah. Dan, go ahead and tell us about yourself. Uh, let's see. <clears throat> you know, I I somehow was always interested in apples and apple trees. And uh, made a move one time with my family when my uh, youngest was about two, my youngest son, uh, down to Hood River, Oregon. And uh, we were in the middle of apple orchard country in the valley there. And I worked at a couple of orchards while I was there. And... <clears throat> Got to know a little bit about apples, and, I, and of course, I bought a cider mill because there were we were surrounded by orchards, and tons of apples just lay on the ground at the end of the season. And the the orchardist said, "Sure, come get all you want." So we bought a, I bought a cider mill that I used for thirty years, probably. I don't know a, we a long time. It. We still have it. <laughs> uh, a small two basket press. It was steel and had a hydraulic pump on an electric motor, and uh, it got used every fall. So we, wherever we lived after that time, we'd always scrounge up apples uh, out of whatever trees or yards or orchards we could find and press sweet juice and freeze a bunch of it for the winter 
and you know the kids love it and it's a great excuse to get families together and and have a little get together and a gathering and, and press press fruit and make some juice for the winter and we always leave a little to sit out and get hard you know to start to ferment on the counter or on top of the refrigerator somewhere uh, to taste as it got uh, bubbly and, and effervescent and a little alcoholic and <clears throat> you know at some point I was making beer at home brewing beer and and uh, just started trying some ciders you know started to do some adding some yeast and doing some fermenting and and trying different things learning a little bit about it and probably became much more interested uh, I don't know 12 years ago or 15 years ago here in North Carolina I was I was back here this is where I grew up and uh, just started to take it a little more seriously and and uh, and uh, pay attention a little more to what I was doing yeah and then about well, now it's been, I think, about four years ago. Um, our friend, uh, we, Phil is his name. He owns a small brewery here in Fairview called Turgwa. And he wanted to be making cider. So he and Dan partnered up and um, started the cider program there at Turgwa Brewing. And then Dan and I, you know, talked about it and said, Kind of funny to be making cider for someone else why don't we make cider for ourselves <laughs> and so let's do this and so we had a property that lent itself to um you know renovating the building um the place where you guys visited uh renovating that upper floor into a tap room and the lower areas where we make all the magic happen with our with our cider so um that's kind of how barn door cider works was created excellent and now, why the name Barn Door? <laughs> well, for to me, for both of us, yeah, yeah, for both of us, I think cider kind of represents an old traditional farm farmhouse drink or a, a, a farmstead drink. Uh, people could easily, uh, you know, when people came to this country and settled, they planted apple trees, and uh, they always had an orchard to make make their cider out of, as well as cooking apples and fruit for the winter to save. So it's a, it's an old tradition. And I think it's, it kind of, it goes back to uh, just homesteading, farmsteading, and uh, it doesn't have to be super fancy. It can be fairly simple. It's a simple drink uh, and it can be uh, delicious and it can also be more sophisticated or more complex at times. But uh, yeah, so we thought Mondor kind of works for that. It's, it's uh, uh, we like the, we like the idea of that. Yeah, the, the rusticness of it and the simplicity of it is really important to us and resonates with, with how we feel about cider and um, the, the role that it also plays in our local community and, you know, how we eat and drink together. So, And it's a good thing to add to your story, too. It kind of fits in nicely with who you are. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So you decide to you're making the cider and you decided to do it on your own. So where, where were the apples? How did you get the apples or the juices that we're using or and continue to use, I guess? Yeah. Well, fortunately we're real close to Edneyville and uh, at that part of Henderson County is just full of apple orchards. And we've gotten to know some growers down there uh, who have some heirloom fruit and some nice old trees. Uh, we have, you know, we get apples from different places. We have a small orchard that we look after up in uh, Rings Creek Valley, north of Asheville, uh, of just uh, maybe 50 trees. Not a lot, not a large orchard, but it was actually planted as a cider apple orchard 
the owners wanted to uh, make uh, Calvados. Oh. They wanted to eventually do a distillery. And the husband passed away at some point and that did not happen. But we were able to, uh, to step in and start helping take care of the apple orchard. And I have a cousin in Yadkin County uh, who had started planting heirloom trees probably 12 years ago or something like that. Yeah. And he and I got together and started grafting a bunch of trees and, and planting some new cider varieties. And there's a couple hundred trees there that are bearing now. And uh, he just planted 725 more trees last year that are all cider varieties that we chose together. And so we're really excited about the new orchard as it comes up. It'll be, it'll be fun to try some of those apples. So you mentioned yeah. cider varieties. What, what varieties are you, should we refer to? They're not, they're not your standard eating apple. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, some, some of them are, some of them are ones that you might see in a grocery store, certainly at the orchards in, uh, in Hendersonville or Edneyville. Um, but, you know, a, a cider apple tends to be a little bit more acidic, um, definitely has some tannins to it and some sweetness. So it, it may be an okay eating apple, but, but not necessarily. Um, it's definitely not a dessert apple or um, a culinary apple, which tend to be more sweet. And um, when you use those for cider, you end up with uh, your end product doesn't have a lot of complexity or body to it because right. it was mainly sweetness. And so you fermented that out. But Dan has some a list of some of the apples that we recently planted down in Yakin Valley. Yeah, and some of the ones we use now, uh, as many Hughes crabs as we can find, uh, Harrison's, uh, Ashmead's kernel, uh, Gold Rush is a pretty good modern variety that we like. Uh, We've planted uh, our Newtown Pippins are, are pretty good. We're not super crazy about them. I think they'd maybe grow a little better in Virginia. The Roxbury Russets, the American Golden Russets are excellent, really good cider uh, apples or apples to blend as well. And those are real good eating apples too. Yeah, they are. They're a good multi-purpose apple. And uh, we've also planted some, some varieties that we haven't tried. One called Winter John that uh, Diane was very fond of and, and thought it really brings some good complexity and some good tannins. And D Diane Flint is up north and she uh, grows apples in a mountainous area also. So it's similar yeah. to what we have down here. Yeah, she's much higher elevation, but that was uh, Foggy Ridge Orchards. I don't know if you're familiar. Yes. I was going to say and the name yeah. sounded familiar. <laughs> oh, yeah. We, we got to visit once before the tasting room closed. I think uh, oh, yeah. like we the summer did. before. So. Yeah. You did the same. Yeah. Uh, we planted Terry Winter and Smith Cider Apples, Winter John. Yates, uh, Roxbury Russet, Newtown Pippin, Keener Seedling, which is a nice russet. It seems like all the, the russeted apples are kind of nice cider varieties and, and some of the crabs. We've had some Hislop crab and Virginia Hughes crabs that are super, super nice. And we also, uh, not as often as we would like, but we do forage um, every year, although last year I don't know that we were able to make it up. We had some other issues. Um, so we uh, have a couple of places up in the mountains where we forage wild apples. And so those apples, um, we've been able to identify a few trees that really produce nice apples for cider. And so we're able to get back up there uh, every year and pick some of those apples. Um, yeah. And they, they, these are wild apples. They don't have names except what we make up for them. So these are apples that 
were the seeds were spread by animals, birds, you know, the wind. However, the cattle. seeds, the cattle Bears. got around, sheep, there's all sorts of, yeah, yeah boars, whatever. Um, and so those seedlings grew into these trees and they, they don't have a name. Um, yeah, and that's really fun, those, those trees. You can have uh, a pasture with apple trees down both sides of the pasture and every tree is a different tree. And they're large ones, small ones, gnarly ones, hard to pick, really difficult, overgrown trees. But one will be big and sweet and insipid, and the next one will be so bitter you can't, you know, taste it. <laughs> uh, and, and a lot of them are tiny, uh, but are just packed with flavor. And so you just, we, we have just been picking and choosing. We've been fortunate to have access to this property to be able to pick, and it's a, it's a large property. Uh, so we, we try and get a few of those. They're hard to pick. They're very time consuming, hard to get to. And so, uh, we don't do as many as we like, but what we, what we find like the last, we did three barrels of, of wild apples year before last. And a lot of them were really bitter acid, high acid crabs, and they work great for blending with other fruit. That's not so punchy. So it, it really helps uh, perk up some ciders that are, are less than exciting. Yeah, and those wild trees, they tend to either be in really difficult places to pick because they're on the side of a hill or something right. like that. And or they grow to be, you know, fairly large trees. And the apples, because of where the sunlight is and the blossoms happen, they're way out on the ends of the branches. Mm -hmm. And so to pick them, you know, a 30, 40 foot tree you can't there's nowhere to put a ladder to pick those apples so we became kind of inventive and had a friend who had a access to an old uh a balloon it's a it's a, a what the flap on a hot air balloon hot air balloon oh, that's what i was thinking it's a large circular huge circular tarp type thing so what we did is we cut it so that we could open it and put it at the base of the tree. And then uh, we sewed some uh, Velcro on. And so we can close it and then we can shake that tree or do whatever we can to get those apples down. Yeah. And, you know, hey, we, we have a law works. here in North Carolina where you cannot, if an apple hits the bare ground, you cannot use it for food or even for cider. Oh, wow, so wow. we have to be really careful about all of that stuff. And so that's how we pick those apples. So as Dan was saying, they are not easy to pick. So no. it's a lot of fun, but it is a lot of work. Mm, I can imagine. So let's talk a little bit about your ciders for a moment. So how do the ciders that you produce differ from what like the normal average person might think of as a cider? Someone, who, someone <laughs> who's not in the know about cider. Well, one of the first things that we kind of educate people on when they walk in the door is that our ciders are a more traditional um, cider and that they are fermented to dryness. So our ciders don't, we don't back sweeten or add other fruits to add um, sweetness. We don't add sugar. We don't add, you know, new apple juice that's not fermented. We don't do any of that stuff. So we let those the ciders sit in the barrels and ferment. And uh, so, so they're completely dry. That's a, a really big difference for most of the people who walk through the door of the cidery. Um, Cause we, we also will have people say, well, I really like dry cider. What's your driest? <laughs> they say they're all dry. 
and they're saying, no, 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 what's your driest? And then we give them a couple of tastes and they're like, oh, your ciders are actually dry. <laughs> so, so that's one big difference, but yeah. Yeah, so that's the modern ciders tend to be sweet and bubbly and flavored uh, because a lot of the apples you can buy commercially are not very great cider apples. So it helps to, to add some complexity to it by adding some other fruit. Uh, so I think I think that the fact that we ferment to dryness and the fact that we age in oak and we give it a lot of time. Uh, a lot of modern ciders are fermented quick, you know, quickly, which it doesn't take long to ferment cider at the right temperature. And you can get it on tap within three, three weeks, three, four weeks, uh, or get it in a bottle. But I think that cider needs to mature. I think at that age, it's it's kind of young and it, it kind of leaves your palate pretty quick and it doesn't, it's, it's not as good as if you give it time. And what I've found repeatedly, whether it's time in a barrel or in a bottle, give it another year, you know, give it another, give it a second year. It's going to, it's going to change and it's going to improve uh, if you can give it more time maturing in some, in, and, and in oak, you know, you get some more complexity from the wood as well, which we kind of like. Yeah, and so that's a really different flavor for most people. We don't do anything in stainless at the cidery at this point, um, even our carbonation. I mean, we don't do anything in stainless. And, um, we, you know, we are an incredibly small business and a small cidery. And uh, we have, you know, 28 barrels about. Um, and our, we use, you know, bourbon barrels, oak barrels. So they're about 50, 55 gallons. Um, so it's it's not a lot of cider. Um, and we're small enough and we're able, as Dan said, to keep that juice or that cider in those barrels for quite a while. And we, you know, we taste them throughout the six months, 10 months, year, 18 months, however long they're in there. Um, and it's amazing, really delightfully amazing how they change. Well, Usually, delightfully amazing. <laughs> yes. Every now and then, it's like, yeah. uh oh. <laughs> kind of course correct. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I think, yeah, the the barrel aging, the dryness. Um, we only use local apples. Um, we don't, as we said earlier, we don't add anything else to the ciders. <laughs> so I think those are the things that you know are different for for what we do. And, you know, it's really fun to talk to people when they come to the cidery and, you know, we'll be explaining about how we make the cider and they will, so many people will be like, oh, so you make it like wine. And we say, yes, <laughs> exactly. Yes, it is not, we don't brew it, you know, we're not doing these other things. It's yes, it's like a wine and people are so surprised. They're like, oh, I'm like, yeah, it's. A fruit and we're juicing it and then we're fermenting it so yeah it's like a wine so pretty interesting absolutely i mean cider really is more wine like than it is beer like so it's it's great oh, that you make it in more of a traditional style as well to really highlight the flavor of the apples or the blends of apples that you're using fermenting. yeah yeah and it's That's you know i was just going to say the other thing that we do at the at the cidery even in the tap room is we explain to people that our ciders are not highly carbonated. We serve them at cellar temperature. So again, it's very different than what are what we tend to call modern ciders. Um, I think our business model's 
much more like a winery than it is like some of this local cideries even because those are almost more like a brewery model. I mean, not how they make their cider, but how they present it. So they are continuously changing. They have new ciders, they're adding new flavors, they're doing these different things. And so you, you, every time you go to the cidery, you have your, you know, maybe few that are standard and then they have, you know, 10 that are different, you know? And so it's a very different model than, than our approach to what we're serving, this product that we're creating and how we serve it. You know, we have four ciders on tap, that's it. You know, we, we, so again, it's more like a winery where you're going and you're tasting there are a few, you know, bottles of wine or, and, and taking it from there. So um, I think that's our, our model, our approach is, is different also than uh, any cidery around, I think. I mean, even Badness and Barrel that does some fantastic ciders and but they're also, I mean, they're adding and creating like all the time. They're putting out something new, something new, something new. And so it's just a very different model than what we do. Yeah, we, we can't keep up with that. The <laughs> <laughs> other things going on. And that's great. I mean, they have some wonderful cider. So it's, it's really cool. Oh, yeah. Yes. So it's, it's nice to have both, both ways of doing it. So I think we're actually at an okay spot to take a quick little break for our wine education segment or our wine and cider education segment, we'll call it. There you go. Uh, but when we come back, let's actually talk a little bit more about the ciders you have on tap and then we'll kind of explore where to go after that. Okay. Sounds good. It's time again for Wine Class with the Wine Mounds. Jesse and Jessica, welcome back. Thank you so much. So tell us, uh, what is it we are going to be learning about today? So today we're picking back up where we left off in our history of wine. So we last left off in BC times. And to give a quick recap from our last episode, wine started as a happy little accident in the Middle East. Shout out to the Fertile Crescent. And then it spread from there like wildfire because wine's amazing. Uh, But it really tracked with trade and religion. And those are some themes we're going to continue to talk about tonight. So Greek civilization is out. Roman civilization is in. Dionysus is so yesterday, and Bacchus is back, baby. (laughs) We are picking back up with the Roman Empire and going from there all the way up to the Middle Ages today. So buckle your seatbelts. We've got a lot to cover. And I thought last time was a long time. This is is just about the same. (laughs) Uh, Yes, we were taking many liberties with the history of the world tonight. So, But just to put it into some perspective, because dates are hard, uh, the Middle Ages lasted from the 5th century into the late 15th century. So it began with the, the Middle Ages began with the fall of the Western Roman Empire and lasted all the way into the Renaissance and the Age of Discovery. So that's where we are headed tonight. Hmm. Awesome. Okay. Tell us more. Yeah. Okay. So again, to put it in perspective, at its height, the Roman Empire was huge. It stretched from across the Mediterranean, from modern day Portugal and Spain in the West, England, Western Europe, Northern Africa, Western Asia, and Rome dominated Western Europe for 1,200 years. And then there was just like a kind of a slow decline. It wasn't just one big event that was the big end of the Roman Empire. It just kind of, there was a crumble. But then historians kind of agree that in 476 CE, aka AD, the last Roman Empire 
Roman emperor was removed by a Germanic invasion. And so historians mark that as the official end of the Roman Empire. All right. Everything has to come to a close. <laughs> Everything does have to come to an end. But some notable things from, from the Roman Empire. We talked about last time just some of the important contributions Romans made to wine practices that are still used today, viticulture as well. But we also get in 77 AD, Pliny the Elder, who wrote Vino Veritas, or in wine there is truth. So these words are still true today. <laughs> Thank you, Pliny the Elder. But yeah, so the Roman Empire was incredibly important. And the expansion of the Roman Empire uh, really drove demand and trade for wine lasting throughout that whole time from BC into AD, or as it's also known, the CE times, Common Era. And after the fall of the Roman Empire, the Middle Ages begin. So the Roman provinces are carved up into feudal kingdoms. And during this time, Europe still is connected to the rest of the world, but it's got a lot of problems, one of which is the Black Death. Dun, dun, dun. Mm, I've heard a little bit about that one. Yeah, same. We actually aren't going into it too much, so maybe we can come back to it in another episode. When the Roman Empire fell, wine production in Italy just fell to a standstill. And at that time, all wine that was produced was pretty much just for the church. And so we're going to dig into those religious influences a lot here. So at the height of the Roman Empire, we've got wines being exported to all over other parts of Europe and other regions, just adopt and get in line with the winemaking practices the Romans invented or improved. But then we've got the church taking over at the end of the, the fall of the Roman Empire. And demand just decreases. Some Roman Catholic monks continued to produce wine during the Dark Ages, but its popularity really didn't increase at all until the Renaissance. After the fall of the Roman Empire, the practice of agriculture, including viticulture and winemaking, fell to the Catholic Church. So monasteries were established at this time, and some focused on wine and agriculture. Um, and we'll also see that the church maintained strict control of all winemaking, and we get a 10% tithe that was taken for the church. Wine's really important, not just for Catholicism and Benedictine monks, you know, held the keys to that wine industry in this time. But we also see that wine was an important part of Jewish religious celebrations as well, including weddings and Passover. And actually, wine's mentioned more than 150 times in the Old Testament as part of different Jewish religious celebrations. Hmm. So kind of interesting. We'll just tie in there. Yeah, so a lot of sacramental wine was made by Benedictine monks throughout the Dark Ages. You have them to thank for making it last into the modern time. Probably heard, too, that alcohol and wine and beer and stuff during these times was typically safer to drink than ordinary water. And there's truth to that. You know, the purpose of the alcohol was to kill bacteria, and so it, it really did make it safer than ordinary water sometimes to drink. Hmm. We think of it like a preservation or a way of kind of, you know, purifying or stabilizing things. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I could definitely see that. All right. So we also, one more thing we have to discuss before we move on from this time period is during the 12th century, crusades are underway. So, you know, meanwhile in Europe, European monarchies are trying to consolidate their power and it gets a little messy here. So like England has control of parts of France. Everybody's just all over the place. Um, England's trading with Germany, Italy, Portugal, and Spain. And transportation of wine by the church was extremely important during this time period, so moving wine from country to country. So again, you can track 
the rise of wine with uh, religion and trade. Hmm. I can see that making sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so now we're going to kind of switch gears and kind of go through Europe, and we're going to switch a little bit and kind of go country by country because there's different stuff happening now. It's not all just the Roman Empire uh, and their control over everything. One fact that's um, surprising is that during this time, England was actually a leader in grape growing and winemaking through much of the Middle Ages. So at the end of the 11th century, there were many vineyards in the southern half of England. Um, Most were associated with the church, as we talked about, but they produced wine. And so these vineyards prospered for more than 300 years. England was an important center of European winemaking. Um, That will obviously uh, fail at some point, but (laughs) um, during the Middle Ages, that still is an important winemaking country. And it's fun to see how we've come full circle on that almost, because Mm -hmm. now they're back to being pretty important when it comes to sparkling and and some of those early ripening out. I guess, early season, high acid grapes that they're doing. Yeah. And, um, you know, when we think of Bordeaux and France, that that's an English controlled area. So there's the tie in there mm. um, and moving in to France. <laughs> um, so uh, France in 1000 Chateau de Boulain is built in France. And um, there is some debate, but this could be the oldest operating winery. 1,000. That's crazy. Yeah. And they picked such a great starter year. (laughs) (laughs) It was a good vintage. (laughs) No, it makes it easy to remember. (laughs) And so, and a little, a little side story here, um, since history can be boring, but we're going to talk a little bit about Eleanor of Aquitaine. Um, So Aquitaine, and I'm probably saying that wrong because it's French, but um, so this is a region in France uh, and the main city of this region is Bordeaux. So we have this lady, Eleanor of Aquitaine, um, and so she had a couple of marriages. So first, she was married to the French king, Louis VII. So with that, you know, had the French, she was queen. Um, Unfortunately, that was not a happy marriage, and they divorced, which is very rare in the Middle Ages, but they did. Um, And then she swiftly turned and married, and I'm not even going to try to say his last name, but he was the heir to the crown of England. So she just went from one um, heir to another. So decided not to be, you know, the French queen anymore and married King Henry this, the second. I mean, that, that, that's what royals seemed to do back in the day was they, yeah. they, you know, marry one and then maybe, maybe they keep their head, maybe not. And then they marry another one. So. <laughs> exactly. They're probably cousins. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Um, but Eleanor was interesting because she uh, was the daughter of the Duke of Aquitaine, and he had no sons, so um, was able to inherit everything. Um, because, you know, Bordeaux is like her hometown. When she moved to England as the queen, she brought French wine with her. And that's kind of how, you know, one of the the tales of how Bordeaux became so popular. Mm. Um, and she brought all of this to England. And um, unfortunately, that also was not a happy marriage. And he became jealous of her and then imprisoned her for 16 years. But um, she actually lived, I think, yeah, I read she lived until she was 82, which is also unheard of in the Middle Ages. Um, But yeah, so that Eleanor of Aquitaine is 
who some can say that we can thank for the prevalence of Bordeaux. Interesting. I hope they attribute her long life to the wines that she brought over. Yeah, I read. Oh, this is where I read. So um, she brought wine to the English royal court. And so in her reign, more than four times the amount of wine was imported into Britain than today. So holy moly, (laughs) they've got to catch up. (laughs) (laughs) But then, you know, France, obviously, over the next years, there was an increase in wine production and trade. Viticulture and enology reached new heights under Charlemagne. And so we're backtracking a little bit in time, but he is one of the big figures in in French winemaking. And he saw to it that vines were planted and maintained throughout Europe. In 13th century Paris, there was supposedly this statistic, there was a tavern for every 600 inhabitants. Hmm. And many adults drank an average of a gallon of wine or beer a day. Oh my goodness. You imagine. It was mixed with the soup at breakfast. Um, I just picture like a Stanley mug, you know, like those <laughs> and water bottles influencers have. And people are like, I just can't even drink a glass of water a day. Like, you know, <laughs> making bowls to stay hydrated. It's like, okay, a gallon of wine or beer a day. Um, and then to kind of at the end of the Middle Ages, we start seeing some um, jugs that were sealed but then we start seeing some of the the signs of re-fermentation and so kind of where we start to hear the word cremant style uh sparkling wines and and ciders too all right so i'm going to take over and talk about germany next so we're backtracking a little bit in history but we are focusing in this area so in germany during the first century wine and viticulture were prevalent and just like elsewhere, it's members of the religious orders that maintained, uh, well, established and maintained the tradition of making wine and perfected winemaking methods there. There is the wild vine, which was a forerunner of cultivated Vitis vinifera. Uh, and it's known to have been grown on the Upper Rhine um, back to historic times. And it's possible, but not documented, that Roman era German viticulture was started using local varieties here. Hmm. Um, yeah. And many viticultural practices were taken from other parts of the Roman Empire, though. So we see evidence here of Roman style trellising systems that survived up into the 18th century in some parts of Germany. So a little of this, a little of that. Um, and so the eastern spread, eastward spread of viticulture coincided with the spread of Christianity which was supported by our guy, Charlemagne. So he was important because he was one of the first to unite Western Europe since the fall of the Roman Empire back in the 400s. And so, you know, he had this goal among his many accomplishments to replant grapes and different things. So in medieval Germany, thanks to Charlemagne, churches and monasteries played a very important role in viticulture and in producing quality wine. So in the year 1000, we had a winery established in France. And in the year 1100, Schloss Volrads was built in Germany. And I don't speak German, so that was probably terrible. Um, But it was burned in 1525 and built again. And it still produces wine today in the Rheingau of Germany. So another historic place you can still visit today. I was going to say, they do take pretty good care of their history over there, so I wouldn't be surprised if they rebuilt and are still going to this day. Yeah. And for several centuries during the medieval era, 
the vineyards of Germany, including Alsace, expanded. And it's believed that they reached their greatest extent sometime around 50, so kind of the tail end of our time period we're talking about tonight. So elsewhere in Western Europe, we've got Spain and Portugal, and they have a little bit of a different history in the sense that they actually were started by the Phoenicians, and then they were followed by the Carthaginians, and they brought with them new and advanced ideas for cultivating vines. Then we get the Romans and the Roman conquest of the Spanish mainland. Hmm. So there were these you know, predecessors or people there before the Romans and the Roman conquest. Um, and when Romans took over the Spanish mainland, they called it Hispania. And Spanish wine was widely exported and traded throughout the Roman Empire because um, it was probably pretty good, and Romans were really good at <laughs> trading and moving things around. But following the decline of the Roman Empire, Spain was invaded by a series of barbaric tribes, including Germanic invasions, and this led to a loss of many vineyards. And there's, yeah, there's really not much record during this time either. And then the Moors invaded in the early 8th century. And um, there is some evidence that some sort of wine industry was present at that time, but not really to the extent that it was. Then they kind of take a different turn here because alcohol was forbidden by Islamic dietary laws. But wine continued to be made and consumed during this time. But again, maybe not to the level that it was previously. I can see that happening, especially with different religions coming in and some favor it, some don't favor it. So mm-hmm. it comes and goes with the time. And the Moors were there for quite a long time, too. I can't remember the exact time frame, but like a while. <clears throat> and then taking a, a different turn away from Spain and Portugal, we can't forget Austria. And so viticulture suffered in Austria with the invasions of the Bavarians while after the Roman Empire fell, because it was once part of that. Um, but then we get Charlemagne, and as he unites Western Europe, oversaw the considerable reconstruction of vineyards and introduction of new grape presses and things. Um, there's a little bit of a renaissance, I guess, but it's not the renaissance exactly, because that's, that hasn't happened yet. It, they just kind of see an uptick in their winemaking. We also see that Austrian viticulture was nurtured by the church there, and it was encouraged among the population in Austria as well. The first vineyard there dates back to 1208 and 1230 are some of the earliest in Austria. And the first wine tax uh, was established in 1359 in Vienna, um, as Vienna established itself as a center for wine trading. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, this kind of takes us through the fall of the Roman Empire and the fallout and um, repercussions, I guess, of wine during this time after that, um, which really was just preserved by and trade and, you know, a couple important people like Charlemagne or Eleanor of Aquitaine who, you know, oversaw its importance and oversaw its maintenance and history. (laughs) Well, definitely a lot. I mean, it, it does seem that it has a good way of persisting throughout time. Otherwise, it would have been like, what's this new invention that we're calling wine? And that's, mm-hmm. that's clearly not how it happened. So right. it's fun to see that it has lasted ages. Excellent. We kind of have some far-reaching food pairings. Oh, perfect. <laughs> that's excellent. So obviously, we don't have any of these from the 500s to try tonight. <laughs> Uh, but if we are going to dig deep a little bit, um, a one idea I had for a wine pairing, a food pairing, was 
communion wine because of the importance of <laughs> religion and the preservation of wine during this time. <laughs> but I wasn't actually brought up on communion wine. I think we drank grape juice out of small plastic cups. So <laughs> this is really more of a joke than a true pairing. But we did talk about Cremant during this time period. So this is a, a very, like, just creamy is kind of what it means. Um, but it's a slightly effervescent sparkling wine. It doesn't have those sharp bubbles. It's more of the creamy light bubbles. Um, so truly a, a wine and food pairing that might go with well with this. Just something that I was thinking was an artichoke dip mm. or um, any sort of salad with fruit on it, like a you know, strawberry feta situation or something like that might be nice. Or I made this high curry chicken salad last night, like not like chicken salad, like we think of in the South, but like high chicken on a salad, hmm. the creamy cashew dressing situation. I feel like that could be really nice. That'd be an um, interesting like fusion cooking. instead of like a fusion of, uh, you know, cultures. It's a fusion of right. eras. So totally. <laughs> <laughs> Right. And then another might be, we talked about Bordeaux and the importance of Eleanor um, and that region. So a Bordeaux claret. Um, and those always pair nicely with a roasted chicken, something with herbs, maybe even root veggies and mushrooms, sort of just like that. would be nice. Very interesting. When you said that about the roasted chicken with root vegetables, and I just flash back to going to like medieval times and having to eat that roasted chicken with your hands. <laughs> Only you had the clear and you're like um, gallon of wine. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so our next segment will be on the late middle ages and what comes next. Don't want to give it away. Some exciting stuff happening. So stay tuned. Well, it sounds like we definitely have a lot to look forward to. Um, I've learned a ton this time around and got a little confused here and there, but we brought it back together in the end. <laughs> so Jesse and Jessica, thank you very much. I'm looking forward to learning more next time. Thank you. And now for a special note from our friends, the Wine Mouths. So just as an extra plug, if you have enjoyed learning about some of the history of wine, we are going to be doing a deeper dive into Wines of the World in a six-week class that we're teaching through Davidson Davy Community College that starts in March. But we're going to be talking about old world and new world. And so really just digging in country by country about the history and the wines and, and all the pieces that play into that. We'd love to have you. The class starts March 14th. It's on Tuesday nights from 6 to 8 p.m., runs for six weeks, and classes are held at wineries and wine shops in Davidson and Davie counties. So not only do you get to sit and listen to class, but you get to do a wine tasting at the wineries and hang out. So go to our website at winemouths.com, and you can see the event posting with the link to the college to register. You can find out more information about the Wine Mouths by going to their website, winemouths.com, or on Facebook and Instagram at winemouths. That's W-I-N-E-M-O-U-T-H-S. And now, back to the show. Okay, so we're back with Katie and Dan from Barn Door Cider Works. So let's talk a little bit more about the ciders you produce and maybe a little bit about cider and food, because that seems to be a big part of what I see on Barn Door's Instagram account. Mm -hmm. Well, 
the ciders we make, like Katie said before, we have, we usually have four ciders on tap, and that's that's what's available. We have some other bottles that are available usually, but because we ferment in fifty-three gallon whiskey barrels, we have fairly small batches, and we might do two or three barrels of the same blend or or a single variety uh, cider, but they don't always come out exactly the same, but often they do. But at any rate, it doesn't stay on tap for all that long before we're on to the next barrel. And so we do change. Uh, we don't have, we don't change ciders every week, but we change fairly rapidly, you know, depending on the time of the year and how many people are coming through and how many bottles, how much bottle sales we're, we're doing at the time. Uh, so and we do try and, and, you know, we find a cider blend that we like and it works well one year. We try and do that again, of course. And we're trying to find those those cider uh, apples that blend well together and, and work well from year to year. But the rusty coat we made the first year is not going to be the same as the rusty coat we make the second year. The apples don't have as much sugar or they, you know. Or they have more. Or they have yeah, or the character is just somehow different and it doesn't work the same, but it's the same apples and it's the. Uh, so we try and we try and replicate those good ciders that we like, but it doesn't mean we're going to have them every time you come in. You, you come by the cidery, sure. we may not have the one you had last time, well, you know, that, two that months ago sense. or something like that. It's it's definitely yeah. you know dependent on nature, right? So yeah, it's like vintage yeah. variation in wine. So right, you know. it is yeah. right. So if you think about a winery, if if they only made you know these small batches with their with their grapes. That it would be very similar. I mean, wineries tend to make a little bit bigger batches than what we do, but um, yeah, I mean, I think, so for example, we, we're, we um, close January and February of each year just to give us some time to kind of regroup. Um, both Dan and I work outside the cidery, so we have other things going on, and then we also have some projects that we need to do at the cidery that we just can't, we just don't have the time to do when we're open. So, um, so January and February are, are usually our winter break, our closed days. But um, the ciders that we had on tap right before we closed, leading up to the end of the year, I mean, a couple of them are really interesting because we had, um, Dan talked earlier about the Hislop crab apple. And so we have a cider called Hislop gold that we had on tap. And it was, a, I think, 8.3% cider. So um, we would do a little bit small. We would do an eight ounce pour of that as opposed to a 10 ounce pour. Um, and that was Hislop um, crab apples and gold rush um, apples that we blended. And so, so when we approach our ciders, um, as Dan said, sometimes we're blending in the barrel and those apples, we're, we're blending them, they're sitting in the barrel and fermenting together. Um, often we're blending afterwards and trying to figure out, you know, I mentioned earlier that we taste as time goes on, as, as the cider is sitting in the barrel, we're tasting and we're thinking about, oh, this one is probably going to be full bodied enough to be on its own, or this one's a little bit, you know, weak really. So how do we, you know, make it a little bit more complex? What do we have that might do that? Oh, you know, Dan mentioned the crab apples. We use those a lot um, to to kind of give it some a little bit more complexity, a little bit more body. So those are the things that we're also doing right now as we're we're closed and we're looking at what we're um, what we have and what we have coming up and that kind of thing. So it, it's a really 
fun. I mean, one of the really fun things, there's two, well, there's many fun things that I like, <laughs> but with regard to cider baking, but one is walking into our barrel room and, and smelling it because it is just a fantastic smell to have those full barrels fermenting away or done fermenting and just sitting there embracing what's inside and giving off this just wonderful aroma when you walk into that room. I just love that. And then the other thing is when we're tasting those barrels and deciding like what we can create out of them or if they're just, they've created themselves and we don't need to do a darn thing. So it's really fun to do all of that. So when people come into the cidery, as Dan mentioned, you're probably, you might not see the same thing on tap. And even if you see the same name, it's not going to taste the same as it did last time you had it, if it was year. months no. ago or something mm -hmm. like that. So that's, that's a really fun part of what we do. I can imagine. So that means visit often. Right. Because it's going to be something new every time. So yeah, yeah. that's right. That's yeah. the moral of that story. Yeah. So, so let's talk more about the food, though. So I, I see when you're open, I see like every week there's a new cake posted or new dessert and all <laughs> yes. sorts of things that are posted. Talk about cider and food and the cider and food that you have spe specifically in your, in your tap room. Sure. So when Dan and I talked about opening a cidery, we both felt pretty strongly about having food as part of the experience that people would have when they came to the cidery. And that comes from, you know, Dan mentioned earlier about cider being kind of a farmhouse, farm staple, <laughs> staple, yeah, a product that you would find on farms all across, well, wherever apples were being grown, you would find that. And they would drink that cider with their meals. Um, I think we have a little bit of an odd tradition here in the United States where we uh, serve alcohol, whether it be wine or cider or beer or hard liquor, and we don't <laughs> serve food with it, which is different than most places around the world. Usually if you're drinking, you're also eating. Um, I think another really important thing that there has been a, quite a bit of research on that people who eat and drink together in a social setting, um, they tend to be more healthy and live longer lives. So when we were, you know, kind of con coming up with the concept of the cidery, is that we really want food to be part of it. Cider should be had with food. Um, the idea of socializing and, and being having cider be the focus, but or maybe the center. And from that, this this other part of the experience was really important. Well, yeah, and, and plus, I mean, just like food and wine, food and cider just go together beautifully. I mean. Uh, they complement, they're so complimentary, so many foods and go with cider so well. And uh, Katie does tours to Northern Spain and there uh, visits cideries in, in that region and creameries and all the cideries serve food, uh, uh, little pinchos uh, or, or big meals, you know, big heavy meals, but there's always food to have with your cider there, which is really nice and some great, some great small bites. And so we kind of have adopted some of that, uh, that attitude of having having a nice uh, small bite with your with your cider, uh, various things. Yeah, and so our menu is um, a, like our cider, very simple. Like we don't we don't do extravagant things. We do simple, really delicious food. And um, 
I also am in the cheese world. So we quite often have cheeses on our, our menu, whether it be a simple thing like a grilled cheese sandwich, but the sandwich is made with local cheese that um, I've chosen that's you know pretty particular. Um, or we have a cheese board and charcuterie. And again, you know, we try to do things as local as possible, especially with cheese and meat. Um, so, but even our, our other foods, they're, they're really simple um, and delicious. So I, I don't know how to, you know, people always ask, how do you, you know, make this? Or this is so delicious. I'm like, it is delicious because it's really simple. And we, you know, like our cider, we are picky about our apples and we want our the apples to speak for themselves. So the food on our menu, you know, our whatever, our garlic mushrooms or our tortilla española or our sausage simmered in cider. I mean, all of these are really simple dishes that use simple ingredients that we then, I mean, they're absolutely delicious. So I don't, I don't mean to downplay um, the deliciousness of the food, but I do want to emphasize the simplicity of it. So um, that's, and so whenever we're putting anything on the menu, we think about how it goes with cider and what ciders it might go with. Um, so th that's a really important aspect too. We did some really good soups this, this winter before we, you know, closed down for our break. And man, it was really fun to do those soups and, you know, think about what ciders they go with or, you know, what, what, how this cider made this soup taste different and vice versa, how having this soup really brought out the apple of the cider or the spiciness of the soup was really mellowed out, you know, by the oakiness of the cider and kind of bringing it down and rounding it out. So really fun stuff that way. That's awesome. I mean, I think that's really great advice for any time you're trying to do a pairing is keeping it simple, like keep the food simple so you don't overmask or over uh, overdo the pairing itself, because it is very much about the unique combination of both of them. As you complement one another, not yes. overtake yes. us. Yeah. And yeah. And I mean, I think, I think when you're pairing, you can, I mean, you can think about how whatever you're pairing, I mean, I've done just because I have been doing cheese for a number of years now and doing, you know, cheese and cider, cheese and beer, cheese and wine, cheese and tea, whatever, you know, um, that, that it can be complementary in the sense of it heightens one aspect or the other of both items of food or one item may really have an influence on the other. You know, I think of a, a kind of easy example of that is eating you know, ha or having a cheese that's a little bit more cream-based um, with, you know, an effervescent drink, you know, and so that cream can kind of, again, kind of round out that, that effervescence or whatever you get from the carbonation that can be kind of tart on the tongue or that kind of thing. So um, that's, that's a really fun part too of what we do, just having fun with food. So what recommendation would you have for someone who's looking to maybe explore pairing their cider with some food? Well, luckily, cider is really easy. I mean, after doing <laughs> beers and wines, I'm like, cider is so easy to pair. <laughs> um, but it depends. I mean, I, again, I think that if you're, you know, cider tends to be a, a fairly um, simple drink, even, you know, your pineapple habanero <laughs> ciders or whatever, um, that if your food is 
too strong or too too complex or complicated, your cider is just going to get lost in in that. So I think um, having foods that are are less um, complicated are, are better with cider. Um, and I think just just like when you're you know either cooking with or pairing with with wine, it's it's very similar with cider. Like how do I decide what to use with this now? You know, there aren't a lot of ciders that I think of that are, um, I don't know what the word would be, but strong enough or strong to the level of like a, you know, a, a full body cab or something like that. Like ciders don't do that for me, you know, in my mouth and what I'm eating and drinking and smelling and all that kind of thing. Cider is not like that for me. So to me, the more simple foods, I think, pair more easily with cider. Um but I mean, we have some really good ciders that pair nicely with, you know, a heavy meat dish. Hmm. Um, we have a we have a, a Hughes crab that's a crooked row. It's called crooked row crab, which is from apples from the um, orchard in Yatkin. And that cider, like you need to have some <laughs> some food with that cider. I mean, it's really a, a cider that deserves and needs a, a pretty heavy meal. Um, you could do like the vegetarian moussaka that with the cream sauce and all that, that's got some complex flavors. You could do something like that with the, the crooked, crooked row crab, for example, um, but also a meat dish, you know, a heavy meat dish, seafood you could try. I think it would overpower the seafood, like a lighter seafood, but yeah. So, so there are some ciders that can really take it on. Awesome. That's good to know. I think that gives me some ideas for some future cider pairings, I think. There you go. Yeah, definitely looking forward to doing more with food and cider. Um, I just, I don't know. I just love cider. So. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I would hope so. Pretty good company. <laughs> yes. And cider and cheese. I mean, come on. Hmm. Oh yeah. Oh, that's so easy. It's yeah. like they're like a partner made yeah, in heaven, sure. or whatever yeah. you want to call it. It's really great. So I know, Katie, we're going to shift gears a little bit here. The last time we were in, we talked a little bit about your involvement in the past with the uh, the cider. Is it the cider council? Uh, the the North Carolina Cider Association That's or it. the UNC Cheese Trail. The the cider association. So it was okay, the, yes. the we talked about when you were previously involved with the cider association. So I know we're we're planning to maybe do something later on with that, uh, but tell us a little bit about how people can get involved a little bit with that. Yeah, so uh, the NC Cider Association, I'm still involved with with that. I'm one of the board members. I mean, we are a nascent, so we're a new organization. Um, and it is an association, so there is membership. The members are all cider makers within North Carolina. Um, there is a website and a uh, map and you can, it's an interactive map. You can click on it. We're in the process of also um, creating, uh, to call it a, a paper. A brochure. Know. Yeah, a brochure, something that you can actually hold in your hand, yeah. <laughs> something tactile um, that will have it all the member uh, cideries and, and that kind of thing. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I have to look for the, the website is a little bit different. It's not NC Cider Association. It's something like. Like it's CiderNC.com? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I know the NC is in there, but it's not at the beginning. (laughs) 
Yeah, so CiderNC.com. So if you go to that website, you can learn a little bit more about the association and, and what we're doing. Um, like I said, it's a new association. Uh, we did a had a cider festival this year. We've had a couple of other festivals and gatherings. We'll continue to do that, I think, every year. Um, so yeah, yeah. Very cool. Always fun to know, to learn a little bit more about the associations that help produce these great beverages and support these businesses. Yeah. And that's a good way to see who's doing what. And if you're, you know, if you're planning a trip and or in your own area, you can kind of click on that map and see who's close by and that kind of thing. So that's kind of fun. Very cool. Yeah. Love it. So what do you want people to know when they come and visit Barn Door Cider Works? <laughs> or, or experience? Cider is. <laughs> well, they can taste that. <laughs> yes. I think so. I'm kind of an educator at heart. So when people walk in the door, I'm all ready to educate them. I think that sometimes they're like, lady, just give me some cider, please. <laughs> um, I think some things that I want people to know is uh, how you make cider and that it's it's not a beer. It's, you know, it's very, it's different. So for me, how you make cider, um, how each cider is different, how modern cider is different than traditional cider. So these, those kinds of things why food is important, like all the things we've been talking about, why food is important when you're drinking cider, why it's important to like socialize and be with people and celebrate, you know, all this. I mean, we live in a, we're so lucky. We live in Western North Carolina. There is an abundance of not only apples, but amazing, you know, homegrown food here. And so we are so lucky to, to live in a place where it's, easy to have a really good meal, uh, simple, you know, quick, whatever meal and, you know, be with other people, whether it be cider or beer or wine, you know, we've, we've got it here and it's really, we're just so lucky in that sense. So, so those, those are things that for yeah. me. Kind of... And I think that just, it's kind of an education process for people to learn about cider. People don't in this country until recently, people haven't known much about cider. And it's right. still new to a lot of people. And uh, there are different kinds of ciders out there. We're, we're fortunate uh, to be able to contribute uh, a little bit of a unique cider to the to the area. And uh, so, yeah, just that, I guess, just that ed educational aspect. People come in and they learn, oh, this is a different kind of a drink than we've had before. It's kind of different and kind of nice. Yeah, absolutely agree. Well, we're very glad that we uh, were able to come by and, and taste the ciders and experience um, barn door and, and yeah, certainly encourage our listeners to do the same as well. Uh, yes, so, please. So maybe, please encourage well, well, why don't you encourage them? Tell, yeah. tell folks how they can find you both physically and virtually. And, uh, you know, you mentioned your winter pause for January and February. So uh, maybe in March through the rest of the year, they can come by and visit. Yeah. So we'll, um, that first weekend in March, we'll reopen. Um, the, we, well, you guys have been there, so you you know we have a, just a really special little place. I mean, it is has a such a warm feel to it. You walk in the front door, and um, even just driving up to it, it's just a, a a fun little spot that is warm and inviting and relaxing and non pretentious and just a great place to come and relax and hang out and be with others, be alone, whatever. Um, it really is a nice little place. It is literally 15 minutes from downtown Asheville. People think we're like, 
way far out in the boonies. But we're not. It's 15 minutes, but we aren't near other things. So we were not near any other kind of shopping or places to eat or drink or that kind of thing. We're, we're out of the way. Uh, we're well worth the trip. We have some wonderful food and amazing cider that you won't get anywhere else. We also offer beer and wine and non-alcohol. You know, you don't, if you have a group of people and some aren't drinking or some only like wine or someone only likes beer or whatever, we've got you covered and we really encourage people to come out and check it out. Yeah, barndoorcw.com. And uh, we're just out, just off 74 in Fairview and uh, just outside of Asheville. Easy to find, easy to get to. Yeah, and it's a unique experience. I mean, you know, we, we, we're different than a, a lot of places. So, um, yeah, come out and see us. <laughs> and folks can also find you on Facebook and Instagram, correct? That's yes, correct. Yeah. yes. And like us and make comments yes. and do all that good stuff. You see yeah, all so, that wonderful food. That, that Yeah, that so one of the things that we do that, that I think uh, Joe was talking about is, so we... Uh, we have a friend who is a baker and she really does not like to bake the same thing more than once. No, she doesn't. (laughs) Right. So we said to her, well, when we open the cidery, you can bake whatever you want and you never have to bake it again if you don't want to. And she said, excellent. So on Fridays, uh, because right now, well, when we reopen, it'll just be Friday, Saturday, Sunday on Fridays. I put a post of what the dessert is and I don't know until she brings it. So it's usually not until after 2 PM on Friday, then, you know, we put a post out of what the dessert is. And uh, it's, it's really fun to think about what pairs well with it. And we have people come in just for the dessert. They're like, oh, I no, can imagine. It's cake to go. It's like, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they all fun. just look stunning. I'm like, wow. Oh okay. my gosh. She does a fantastic job. And we do, we also have uh, once a month we do Apple Country Farms. It's a local woman who does a. It's called Cookie Crumble Apple Pie. Mm-hmm. Fantastic, and we do that once a month. And then she's a local person, and she does a fantastic <coughs> job. And yeah, so that's a fun part of what we do. But we also have other food, not just cakes and pies and that kind <laughs> of thing. But yeah, other food too. Excellent. So, is there anything else you want the listeners to know about you and Barndorf Cider Works? Well, Dan uh, mentioned briefly about going to Spain. So I do a tour once a year to uh, northern Spain. And uh, it's really, it's a fantastic tour. And the reason that tour was started, because we decided to make a trip there. And there was so much to do. I was like, how do people decide what to do? (laughs) And as a a cheesemaker and a cider maker, that was kind of our focus when we went. And man, we just had a fantastic time. And I said, we've got to create a tour out of this. And also, you know, the Basque Country, and we're mainly in the Basque Country in Asturias. Those are regions that people just don't know about. People right. in the United States don't know about. So that was the other part of my educator coming in and saying, we need to let people know about this part of the world. So we do a fantastic tour every year. Um, this year, this, yeah, 2023 is, is already happening, um, but we'll put more information out later in the year for 2024. Mm-hmm. And I encourage, but you can go to the website now and see what the tour is like, but it's closed for this, this year, but it'll be out later. So I'd really love people to know about that. It's a fantastic way to spend some time. Sounds like it. I'm just have to keep that in mind mm-hmm. a few years from now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that would be awesome. The other thing that I just wanted to say real quickly is, you know, we, we've talked about um, app, growing apples and I think the cider industry here in, in North Carolina 
has a really bright future. I mean, we really have some um, orchardists and people who are growing apples who are saying, you know, there's there's a need here for different types of apples, not just the, the eating apples or the culinary apples. So um, I think there's been some shifts happening. Um, Dan talked about you know, his cousin in, in Yakin Valley who's doing stuff, but there are many others who are also kind of making a shift. And, and so I think that the cider here in North Carolina is just going to continue to get better. Um, I think the cider makers are going to have better choices for their apples mm -hmm. and be able to have a little bit more fun and exploration with how do we make our ciders even better. So that's really exciting for all of us, I think. So that's what we can all look forward to for sure. Yeah. Yes, yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. And all that well, diversity that we have within the, the small cider world we have today is only going to get better. I think. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, we'll see how the, the different regional ciders evolve. Right. It's kind of interesting. I think our, I think our Southern ciders have a taste of their own yeah. and they're quite different from a lot of the ciders I've tasted from the Northeast in different areas. And so it's good. We need to find the apples that work best here and, and uh, the best way to, the best ways that we can find to make cider out of them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you guys for, you know, doing, doing what you do too. Yeah, it's really fantastic. great that you're kind of exploring, not, not just grape wine, exactly. <laughs> but other wines too. So thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. We love all fermentables, so it's a good thing. So and we're very happy to have you on the podcast. So Katie and Dan, thank you very much for taking time to sit with us and virtually chat about cider and talk about Barnbrook Cider Works. We're very happy and encourage all of our listeners to go out there and make a visit. Yay. We hope thank to you see guys. you again sometime soon. Yes. yes. Love to have you come in. Thanks. That's it for this episode of Cork Talk. Thanks again to Katie and Dan. They have a passion for cider and want others to know just how great cider can be. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. It helps others find Cork Talk and lets us know how we can improve. And don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at NC Wine Guys. Until next time, and remember, Cork only talks when it's out of the bottle. Cheers! Cork Talk is a Freeman LLC production. This episode was made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council.